Hullett, and you're listening to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. Today, I've got a special guest, Kim Mooney. She's the founder of Practically Dying, and she's a TV and radio show host, and she's an author. And Kim is just one of those uh, end-of-life educators who's just been around a while. She's got innovative approaches to death support and education, and she's even won national awards for her work. I'm going to read something from her bio because I just think it sums up her approach so nicely. She says, prior to founding Practically Dying in 2014, Kim worked for more than two decades within hospice at the local, state, and national levels. During those years, she cultivated a broad set of skills in end-of-life care, crisis intervention, and grief support, recognizing that deaths of all kinds in all communities require different kinds of emotional, spiritual, and mental understanding and assistance. She also learned deeply that the most important thing about death is the life that comes before it. So Kim and I are off to a two-part special here. And in part one, we're going to talk about, well, all kinds of things. Listen in. So hi, welcome, Kim. Hi, good morning. Really great to have you here, an official certified thanatologist. And I love you've got a great little spot on your website of people trying to pronounce that word. (laughs) How did you get into thanatology and what's what's your background? I think most of the people who are doing any end-of-life work came in through personal experience. Something either touched them or they became aware of how big this is. And I had um, cervical cancer in, I don't know, I think it was 1989. And I got into a cancer support group and everybody died except me and one other woman. They did not die in the right order. They did not die with the experiences we thought. And at the age of 39, it kind of blew me out. You know, I had grandparents die, but I'd never really been in the field. So I wrote to Stephen Levine, who is a Buddhist teacher. And I said, oh my God, I'm going to die. And he wrote back and said, well, yeah, what's the problem? I said, I'm scared. And he said, get a little closer to the fire. Go volunteer with hospice. So I volunteered with hospice for a little while and and fell in love. I had my romantic phase with death and dying and then started working there and worked with hospice for 22 years doing grief education, running grief programs, and also doing community education. Um, And left there about six years ago and started my own business called Practically Dying, where I can do that and whatever else I want to do. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And I asked him to today kind of to talk about, you know, the big picture of how we die. And then also we wanted to get into just like, what are the various exit ramps? And so this is going to be a two-parter and I'm really excited about that. So say a little bit, you know, what do you mean when you say exit ramps? And I didn't coin the term, by the way, it's been used a lot. So um, I would say modern medicine, which is a term we use, we overuse, can We've learned a lot in the last 50 years about how to keep bodies alive, not people, bodies. And those are wonderful things. Most of the the tools that we use to keep bodies alive now, you know, artificial nutrition, hydration, ventilators, all those things were, they're fabulous. They were designed to be used short term for people who are going to get better. But we live in this medical system that um, hasn't learned a lot about dying. They're trained keep people alive. So they use all the tools at their disposal. Yay, if that's what you're going to do. But because the doctors aren't trained and the medical system isn't trained, and the medical system at this point isn't rewarded for being trained, you know, we're going to get there. But because of that, we're living in a 
a culture where there weren't really aren't a lot of good resources compared to the ones trying to keep you alive that educate you in a timely way, which is why advanced care planning is so important, to think about what this might even look like and what it is that you want out of your end of life. In the perfect world, and you know this, our end of life is just part of our larger life, and we get to die the way we lived. It's not this chopped off piece at the end, but you will see that that's true. Um, we also have a lot of religious influences around end of life right now, which have become, um, they, many of them are contrary to letting go, although we see most major religions are really coming to, 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 coming to grips with this and finding ways in their own mystical traditions to accept care for people who don't want to be there. Well, anyway, you know what I mean, religion. That's all I have to say is religion. So influences from medical advances, really, but also advances applied, not necessarily in the way we always want, and then religious influences, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, then there are more cultural things, like we're the Pepsi generation, you know, we don't have traditions anymore. We split up in the 50s when we developed highways and families quit living intergenerationally, and we don't see a lot of old age and dying. Um, you know, we hear over and over and over that we're a death-denying culture, and that's true, but we're also death-saturated. You know, how many movies do kids see by the time they're 18? It's just that we disassociate it as being from us. So when I do a lot of teaching, I always start at, wow, isn't that fascinating watching those customs in Ghana? And wait a long time before I say, by the way, you two are going to need a coffin. So I don't think we're death, we're personally death-denying. Okay, so culturally, there's that. And that shows up in a lot of ways. It shows up in how we um, handle our aging physically, plastic surgery, um, which I'm not opposed to. Everybody has their own reasons, but also language. It comes up a lot in language. And because we aren't consciously confronting it, well, so we'll talk a little bit about medical aid and dying later. It, it was called physician-assisted suicide. Well, that's kind of a hard stop right there or a bummer. That's also got a lot of religious connotations, you know. Um, right. So you'll see a lot of the language is shunts you away. You know, we, we all know the euphemisms, you know, she passed. One of the stories I'll tell you really quickly is a, a little boy who was told that his grandmother was lost. We lost a grandma and he went to the, to the funeral. And there's a lot to be said for it, teaching kids of an early age. And the beautiful hand, well, you know, coffin beautiful, shiny, and he went home and started looking in the bureau because to him, the coffin looked like a dresser and she was lost and he was going to find her. So while that's a story about kids, we could easily extrapolate and say that same thing happens to us a lot as adults. So one of the things you'll see in all of these when we talk about exit ramps, we're looking for language that accurately describes it. And that is why the single most important teaching that we can have is people's stories. Because the language that comes out of their mouth and their experience can can push through an awful lot of rhetoric. Yeah, yeah, so well put. So well put. And how what language you use really frames your experience, what for for better and for worse. Absolutely. Yeah, big on words. So so, you know, how do people die? Okay. Um, actually, the biggest cause of death is old age. Duh. You know, but they every so often an article will come out like that, and I'm going, oh my God, it's worse than I thought. 
that's a lot to learn. Because we um, needed to put this in an article and state it as research. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. So we, we say that about 10% of us just die suddenly, get hit by a car, whatever. I actually watched a, a weird video on YouTube, or as you can imagine, where it showed like 20 people who just died. Like a newscaster in the middle of the newscast just peeled over. And it was interesting because it was remarkable to watch the moment when a body went from life to death and there was no reason. Okay. So when we think about people just die, sometimes we can describe a reason. The three major categories that we put deaths into are, um, one is like a short decline. Usually it's like cancer. Okay. So it's a long illness and then a really quick decline at the end. This is the kind of death that we used to deal with in hospice at the very beginning which is why Medicare put together a six-month diagnosis, which has not served us well since then. But at that time, it described a huge population, huge hospice population. The second population are people that have what we call like long-term episodic things like lung diseases and heart diseases where they, they're fine and then they have a sharp decline and they come back up, but they never quite hit the same baseline. A lot of emergency room visits. And when these people die, their families are usually shocked because they've come out of it so many times. Not usually, but often shocked. So they've right, they've got like that staircase down with yeah. a little bit back up, but you keep expecting the the one more stair. Like they made it last time. Why did they suddenly not make it this time? But as you said, it really has been a slow decline through some disease process, typically, or a body I failure. I think that's also important because we... Um, there's a big difference in the grief process around people who expect a death and people who don't. And there's no comparison. There are just different things that come up. So it's possible to be with somebody for a long time who's sick, and then they die suddenly, and it's still a sudden death to you. Significant. Right, and then the right. third one, which is the group that, because of all the things I said earlier, get the short shrift and are the hardest for all of us, especially all of us getting older, are the dwindling, the dementias. And partly the reason I say that is that they don't fit into any of the girdles in the healthcare system. So should they be in hospice earlier? Yes. Should we be providing lots of different care for them and their caregivers upstream? Yes. And we don't because they don't fit into any of the girdles. So Right. They're not they're not in the emergency room for major things that they bounce back from after intervention. And they're not in a clear terminal cancer diagnosis, for example. So they're just sort of dwindling. You know, when you mentioned dementia, I was struck recently, a retired physician said to me, he he I was um, he was at a talk I gave about end of life, you know, the importance of talking about this. And he said, you know, what people don't realize, he said, the statistics are that 80 percent of us will have some type of dementia over 80. And he said, so you really have to talk about it upstream and people just don't want to. They think there'll be time down the road. But he said, if 80% of us have some kind of um, brain challenges over the age of 80, wow, that's that's huge in terms of an ability to, to think about this before you think you need to. Exactly. exactly. And I think it's exactly um, even truer with dementia because there are no cures for it. And they say by the time people exhibit any symptoms, they've probably been on a decline for 10 years. So once again, when you're 50, you know, you shouldn't be looking at fixing those pecs only. You should really be looking at what are you doing with your diet? What, are you, what are, kind of exercises are you doing? And we just don't prepare along the way. Yeah. Well, I think we always, we always think that we'll do that eventually. 
That's how I think of it. It's yeah. like, well, eventually I'll get to that. But yeah, it's hard, to say, it's hard to say now is the eventually. I need to do it now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's because we also have this picture that we're going to die usually 10 years later than whatever age we are. You know, so that gets really tricky, too. So really? that's sort of the landscape that we're dealing with. Um, yeah. And along that, there are lots of, like we said, sometimes it goes up and down, but there are lots of promises and hopes and then occasionally will be the one one in a hundred thousand miracles that are easy to glom onto. You know, we we I, the best part about end of life to me is that there are no absolutes, there are no rights. So when everybody anybody says, "Well, this always happens," you know that they don't know what they're talking about. So we always hear about people dying and going to the light. Well, there was some guy who died, and they said, "What was it like?" And he said, "It was just black. It was just black." And he died again. And they asked him a second time, not, nah. and he said, I told you it was just black. <laughs> so nothing is true. So there's always one person who outlives a stage four pancreatic cancer diagnosis. So choices are based on oftentimes an incredible hope that people grab onto anything to avoid thinking about dying because they haven't. And the last thing you want at the end of life is a surprise. So just a reminder. You can die any day. And even though we think of that as a curse, that's my blessing to all my friends. Really, you don't want to go with me to Hawaii next week? Well, you know you could be dead by Monday. It's a great eye-opener for the right people, and it's a great way to get rid of people at parties. <laughs> a friend of my oh. parents who who went through some really tough cancer, he, um, you know, afterward he would struggle physically with some certain pieces that the cancer had left him with, but but he always said, hey, consider the alternative. You know, that was his, that was his mon mantra was like, I'm doing everything I can given my new limitations because mm -hmm. consider the alternative and I'm going to seize every day. And so, you know, the other thing is that that shows us life, people who deal with it, people who think about it, it is so precious. I mean, our bodies don't want to die. They'll do anything to stay alive until they won't. And that's the point at which the wholeness of us you know, the the being and the soul and the mind and the brain and the body, when everybody's ready to go, that's when we need to get out of the way. So is it wrong to take a patient who's got stage four pancreatic cancer and probably has three months left and give them every single hope and what we used to call futile treatment? No, it's not, you know, but, but it all has to be weighed against. There's a, a website in a group called the Completed Life, Completed Life Initiative, way worth looking at. And it's not complete life, it's completed life, because one of the things we've done in this country, and I'm not opposed to it, it's just a cultural choice, is we have opted both out of fear and out of our the way our culture set up to protect people who can't protect themselves. So, you know, um, demented people, uh, mentally challenged people, children, most of our systems, whether they work or not, err on the side of taking care of them when they can't take care of themselves. The problem with end-of-life care is that they're in our faces, and when it's time for them to leave people alone, they don't. That's the problem. So, so what can you do about it? Advanced care planning. Again, by the time you're 18, you should be thinking that this could happen to you. And the, the gift, I think, of advanced care planning is that you're thinking of two things. You're not just thinking about what happens if you die. You're thinking about what happens if you get in any situation where you can't represent yourself. And even though there's some bad language, stupid language in there, like living will, who who knows what that means? Who knows what that means? You're, yep. You're looking for two things. If I can't represent myself, 
how are they going to know what I want and who's going to tell them and who's going to stick with it? So that's mostly what advanced care planning is. So of course it's, it should be an, a conversation as you age, as your body changes, as your health changes, as you get divorced. But that actually sets us up to think about that personal piece way in advance. So if you have thought of that and you're listening to yourself and you're paying attention and you've got good questions for the doctors, and that's another piece, when you get to end of life care, it should be, and once you're in hospice, it technically is about what you want, not what you're being told by a doctor. You can't be a medical consumer for 50 years and all of a sudden just take over your care. So when you're doing advanced care planning, one of the things is you should be learning how to communicate with your medical professionals and ask really tough questions. And your advocates should be really strong advocates. So when you get to a place where you recognize that your health is permanently compromised in some way, shape, or form, do you know that you don't have to do anything? You can turn down every treatment. Well, even if you know that, when a doctor says to you, really, really, you're going to let your mom go? Don't you love your mom? I'm telling you, it's so easy to cave, even if you have backup. So practicing with that team. So you can actually say, I don't want any treatments at all. In Colorado, I think in most places, if you are forced into a treatment, it's battery. They can't make you do anything. Now, there actually have been, I think, two or three wrongful life suits around the country where doctors have pushed things. The other thing is, is you can ask to be taken off of any treatments. And most of the treatments you would be asked to be taken off of are the ones I spoke about earlier that are great for if you're going to recover. So you can say, I'm done with the ventilator, or I don't want to drink and eat anymore, take the tubes out of me. You can refuse all those things, or you can say, take me off. Now, in real life, it's often harder. If you're, if you're sitting here talking, they're going to listen to you. Consent first state. But if you're not, then your agent's going to have to be making choices for you. And so it is harder for most people to take you off of life support than to stop a treatment from starting. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a, as a child, as a spouse, as a sweetheart of somebody, that's just really a huge challenge as a sibling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you say when, as you said, this is so powerful, this language of what happens when you can't represent yourself and mm-hmm. how do you convey what your beliefs and your hopes and your wishes are for that kind of state? However, that state finds you, mm-hmm. who do you convey that to and how do you let them know? And there's legal papers to put in place and there's also conversations to be had. Yeah. And, and I think that, well, we all know the conversations are the most important part, but to get your advocacy team, not just your healthcare agent, you should have one person that legally represents you, but man, we don't want them to be working alone. Because when a doctor's asking you about treatment choices and you're looking at a bed and that person in bed looks like they're sleeping and pink and comfortable, that's really different than the reality of what might be going on in that body. And if you're not knowing that, it's also just viscerally kind of hard to imagine that they're dying. Yeah. Yeah. So also of- so challenging to have everybody on the same page, right? I mean, I know there's all kinds of situations where a step parent or a, one sibling doesn't agree. Um, so how, boy, I mean, yeah. it really comes down to how individual every situation is both for the person who's experiencing the disease or the slow decline and also for the families and what that structure is like and how they communicate or don't communicate. Yes, perfect. And the other part I think I would add to that is that what most 
medical teams will do if there is a huge conflict like that is that they'll try to put the brakes on because they know that the the fallout, I mean, some families and friends, families of origin, choice, whatever, never talk to each other again. So again, when I work with people individually, we put all their paperwork together. We do a lot of thinking about values. And then the last thing is usually a meeting with the family or the friend, anybody who may, not just the people who are legally involved, the people who may show up at your bedside and pull the a people who are emotionally involved. Yeah. Get them all in the room, find out they know what you mean, figure out who's going to be a pain in the neck. And either they come around, you don't have one conversation, or you make sure that they're not there. So that's setting, that's really the most important thing, I think, is that advocacy team working. Because yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a beautiful story of a man who had, he and his wife had written out their advanced directives, taken a lot of time with their kids. And now we suggest that you do it in paper and you also do a video, Mm -hmm. a little video, because the more senses involved, the more people are going to listen. And the mother was in an accident and they were sitting in the ER waiting and the kids were like, no, no, too soon, can't do it. And he sat down and he read the paperwork that they had put together and said, remember her words, remember that this is what she wanted. And being able to hear her language and remember took them over that edge from the emotional to the uh, relational again. And took them over that edge from starting processes that they might then have to undo later, as you said, much more difficult to undo. Yeah. Well, say a little bit more, Kim, about the... um, you know, so we talked about the sudden death, which I think, I think, I don't know, some people, sometimes I feel like people that I talk to sort of hold out like that, that would be good. Like, just take me out quick, lightning strike. <laughs> I, I just, you know, get hit by a bus. I, it's not very good for the people who remain, right? It's very sudden deaths are very challenging for those who didn't see it coming. But it's also not the most common. I think uh, I remember seeing a TED talk where the the man said, you know, of all the people in this auditorium, none of you will die a sudden death. Like it's it's statistically lower. So um, it's more likely, like you said, this um, either uh, emergency and then recover, emergency recover or slow decline. Can you say more about the slow decline? Because I, I feel like that's probably the biggest category and maybe the hardest category and, and the category that many of us as baby boomers or whatever you want to call this generation who's now aging in huge numbers, many of us are going to experience that. And and I think we're not going to like it. <laughs> well, first, let me again take care of that absolutism. I think, again, as I said, there's lots of ways that people die suddenly that we don't expect. But when I'm doing workshops with people and you're just looking at contemplative questions, that's a really good one is do you want to die suddenly or do you want to have time to say goodbye or what? And a lot of this comes out of our history. Dying suddenly. Well, I actually had a client who called me because her father died by suicide. And I thought, okay, she wanted me to come to the family gathering. And I went, okay, this is going to be, you know, intense, no big deal. And I got in there and they had champagne and they were, they said, you know, he's been miserable for 30 years and he hasn't been able to do anything about it. And we are so relieved for him and ourselves. We've been waiting for it. Every phone call at 1030 at night. So again, what we think on paper isn't going to be, doesn't look good. It's really individual. And I could ask you right now, you know, do you want to die suddenly? Would you rather bust from the back? Right. You know, well, the good part about that in, in my culture, the good part about that is I wake up every morning and think, what if this is the last day I tell my husband? What if I died today? Am I being as kind as possible? Mm. 
On the other hand, my mom had two months where she was not in pain and she got a chance to say goodbye to everybody. What we say when people are grieving is, again, no competitive grieving. It's really hard when someone dies suddenly. It's really hard to watch somebody decline. And yeah. as you said, most of us, partly because of the way we've lived, partly because of medicine, we will probably spend more years dying. I mean, and again, that's theoretical because we're all dying now. Right. Living, living to the end, living towards death, right? Yeah. yeah. One of the one of the things we say in my field is life is a sexually transmitted disease that ends in death. <laughs> oh, so yeah, we're all dying, but you know, so it's different. Um, they're both different kinds of griefs, and they're both different kinds of journeys. Yeah. And I think most of us, many people who are not in pain until the very end, um, are fine with declining, and oftentimes they are surprised because we are eminently adaptable and our bodies don't want to die. So someone who might say, boy, if I'm ever in a wheelchair, I'm done, gets in the wheelchair and says, look, my grandkids can still get on my lap. This is good. So that's important when you're doing planning also to realize that you're probably going to change and life becomes more precious as you go along. And there are people who just say, and that's why the completed life initiative is nice, is, you know what, I'm done. Either I've done my work, my spirit is ready to go, which the medical establishment just shorts out, you know, but that's a completely different way to look at your life and your death. So, um, so the good part is what a nice lead in is that for people in this culture who have, who know that they're going to die. And this is the hardest line to go over the line where you say, ah, I can keep doing treatments, you know, but I know I'm dying. Once you get over that line, and you have a doctor say that you are six months away from death, which is stupid. That's still hanging on to that Medicare rule from whatever years ago. Because now we have people with all those diseases in all of those different categories. And some of them are dying actively, but they, they, nobody knows. And doctors don't know. So Medicare has fixed that by allowing you to amend. Okay, she's not dead yet, but she's still dying. Check, you know, we'll, we'll give her a little extra time. So when you are in that state, you can actually move into palliative care and hospice. And what that means, palliative care straddles the two. Let me say hospice first. Because hospice has gotten a really bad rap lately. There are like 5,000 hospices around the country, some for-profit, some non-profit. But what it really is, is it's a model of care that goes back to the villages that we lived in 200 years ago. So when you can say, I know I'm not getting better, and you move from curative care into hospice, you're sitting in a group of people who aren't scared to death, who know what it looks like, and they are everything from a doctor who's trained to nurses to CNAs who understand what it's like to touch a dying body and how sensitive it can be if they give them a bath, to social workers who can help you with your paperwork, who understand how to listen. They're very trained in listening to the stories of dying people. But we had a social worker who helped a man and woman get married four days before he died. And chaplains who we try to say that they are, we don't use the word chaplain. All, well, some hospices do, but the point is that people reject them often because they think they're religious. And hospice chaplains are interdenominational. I might be a Methodist. I can get you a shaman. So yeah. that whole team, plus volunteers who can shop for you or do music therapy, that is what hospice is about. And you move into that, but you have to have crossed that line. Yeah. Well, but you move into that to create a level of care that actually creates 
a, a kind of very gentle and kind. I love how you phrase that about how the team is is really a team and the best of hospice is supporting people 100% through this um, transition, however long that transition takes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so keep going though, you were in the middle of something. Well, I'm gonna go backward a little bit because everything in hospice is considered palliative care, which means I'm just focused on comfort. I'm not trying to fix you. So there is now a field, there has been for a long time, misunderstood about palliative care. And so people who weren't ready for hospice, either they don't want to give up trying a shark fin, which by the way, sometimes works for people. They don't want to give it up yet. So they don't move into hospice, but we call palliative care kind of like hospice light. So they'll get visits from the team. They are surrounded by the team. They get visits from the team. So it starts to help them look at the possibility of just being comfortable. And the team also brings their family in as the unit of care. So it's just a gentle way to change the focus. Mm-hmm. But you can also go in if I had, if I were queen, every hospital would have a palliative care team. So even if you're just in the hospital and you're going through surgery for cancer and you're sick to your stomach all the time, your palliative care team would come in and talk to you about how to get rid of the nausea. How do you get rid of the symptoms and the side effects of things? How do you stay as comfortable as possible? And sometimes that's what allows people to continue to go through treatment. So palliative care is a huger, a bigger field than hospice, but hospice is the, I'm across the line, I know I'm going to die field. The other thing about it, I think, is that there's, we still have doctors who think hospice kills you. I just want to slap them into the ground. Don't say that. I'm a groovy spiritual person. I just want to slap them into the ground. They're scaring people. Scratch that. Scratch yeah, that. Take that like out the of The sort of idea that hospice somehow brings drugs that kills people. I, I think that the, what you're probably getting at is that the use of pain medication at the end of life, when it's called for, actually allows the body to quiet and do its process of dying. That's very different than these medications somehow kill people. Yeah. And again, if you're not used to thinking of morphine as something that helps you breathe, if the only indications you've seen are trying to get well or turning into drug addicts, we know how many dying patients drag themselves out of bed and go down to 7-Eleven and sell it on the street. Right. You know, that's what the medical system is still dealing with. Plus, I actually think a lot of doctors who don't understand end of life, people go into hospice and they die. Well, listen to how that sentence sounds. People go into hospice and they die, not they go into hospice and we take care of them until they die. So we still have a fringe of doctors who think that hospice kills people because they never see their patients after they shut them off the cliff. And as you said, again, it's language, you know, back to that, back to the, where we started is kind of this language piece on how we hold it and speak of it impacts people's understanding of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kim, maybe this is a first place to end our our first part of our conversation. And then um, we're going to move into part two and talk about some other really relevant uh, choices that people have. Okay, good. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for part one. Thanks so much, Kim. You've been listening to the Best Life, Best Death podcast. You can find out more about the work of Kim Mooney at practically-dying.com. And you can find out more about the work I do at bestlifebestdeath.com. Thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm.